0: Um, if you're just joining us, my name is Lesin and with me on this conversation is Stephanie and Danger. Um, Stephanie is head of operations at Innovation Hub, and Danger is a growth consultant and um, co-founder of Future Africa. And I am head of platform at Aging Capital. And today we're going to be talking about. Simple products that have gone on to become big companies in Africa, and um, the basis of our conversation is we just want to like analyze what has made these companies different, and you know companies that have taken like a lot of the market share. What what makes them different, basically, you know? And um, yeah, so um, okay, I think we can kick off. We have more people on the conversation. What is it, Danger?
1: Stephanie. (laughs) Yeah, of course. Of course. Okay. Uh, We can take off.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, so during the course of the conversation, if you have any questions, feel free to just request, and I'm going to allow you to speak. Um, so yeah, my very first question will be: I don't want it to be like a QA session, I want it to be more like a conversation. So I think the first thing that we're gonna talk about. Is basically why more startups are successful than others, and so in in your work as you know in your work in the VC space and in the accelerator space, why do you think um, more startups have gone on to be successful than others? I think Stephanie, um, I would like to hear from you first.
1: Okay. Um. Once again, thank you, blessing. The response to your question would be that uh so there's no hard and fast Sorry, I, I gotta be cut yeah. off from, from back yeah. well. So there's no hard and fast rule but there are basics that every business needs to have in order to have a shot at being successful right Number one is the clarity of the problem that you're trying to solve. Mm -hmm. Right. I always say that when when we speak to founders, when we run them through our programs, we always say, yes, you're an entrepreneur, but your number one job description is solving problems. You need to have clarity about the problems you want to solve. Number two, the execution. So you may have an idea about how to solve one of the most pressing problems in the world and you don't execute it. It's just what it is. It's just an idea, right? You never build a business out of it and all of that. So execution is key. Also, the founding team, or would I say, how well the founding team is able to 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 work together. Some people are solo founders, right? That's okay. But typically we see uh, a group of people, maybe two to three people coming together. That element... So, That winning factor, that winning mentality in the founders is is something that cannot be replaced. No amount of money can actually replace that, right? So you have a clear idea about uh, how to solve a problem. You know how to execute or you are committed to executing. And the third thing will be that there's a mentality that successful founders have. It's in their DNA. Right, that winning mentality it has to be there, right. And then of course, yeah. um, you can also you can also say something about about um, I call it a little bit of luck, right. So let okay. me explain what let me explain what I mean. There are very good ideas that have come, but the market is not ready for them. So you you need to understand the time that your that the market is right. You need to understand it and you need to be able to to know when to make certain decisions. And most of the time you can study charts, you can follow trends, you can do all of that. You're not just Some some people are just lucky to arrive on the scene at the time that the market is ready for them. I always say that being first mover is not always an advantage. And most Mm -hmm. of the time Yeah, and sometimes I've been proven um, correct, right? So some people are first movers in some markets and trust me, we can't hear them or we we don't remember them. It's Mm -hmm. not because they didn't have the right team. It's not because they didn't have the idea. It just wasn't the time that the market wanted them. So sometimes I call it luck. And I always say to our founders, you are lucky to be solving this particular problem at this time, that people want to pay for it, right? There are some problems. Right that... Okay, yeah. Go on. Yeah, so, so, so there, are, there are some problems that people really need to 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 be solved. But maybe they're not just ready to pay for it. But at some point, when there's that alignment, market is willing to spend money. You're solving that problem. You have a great team. Then you see, you want to record success. So I, I think these are just a few things. Mm-hmm. You we know, you want to add something. Yeah, bingo.
2: I'm just going to do the Nigerian thing and say I agree with everything that Stephanie has said.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: but I would like to add more on um, luck and timing. I think something we often don't acknowledge enough in our space, um, with technology especially, is that there is... A, there is it's really difficult to predict when is the right time to launch a product. Uh, sometimes there's often a bunch of signals. Other times, people don't even know that like they want the product. And I would like to give like two examples. Um, so I remember like the time YouTube was becoming popular. I was a teenager, um, mm-hmm. but the only way you could play YouTube on any device was if you had something called Flash Player installed, because Flash mm-hmm. was the codec that enabled um videos and animations on the web at the time and here was this company youtube growing um, and mobile was coming in and it turns out you actually couldn't play these videos on mobile so you could have you would have an iphone and you couldn't play youtube on your iphone and the iphone was like one of the very first smartphones right and so the company just kind of picked growing on the web on laptops and desktop but did not have this um Mm -hmm what's it called mobile expansion right nothing was happening people couldn't upload videos or watch videos on their mobile on youtube if they were not doing it in the browser and um in a few years time there was now i think it's called the h264 codec that enabled youtube to be able to work natively on mobile phones so like if nobody built this um what's it called if nobody built this codec and maybe youtube did not even solve that problem themselves they might have died right mm, um right. in retro- retrospect youtube seems to be this very big company with this very big you know user base and all this content but but like they had this very big they had this big problem as well that they didn't even solve it was somebody else who solved for that yeah. problem and they were able to adopt and use it um, another second example is when you look at things like um or businesses like Paystack, right and in 20, I think it was 2016 or 2015 when they launched, it had seemed like so it had seemed like um, there was going to be uh, what's it called? A plateau of like web transactions or online transactions in Nigeria. And this company had come in, built a product that was so good that um, the opposite thing happened, right? They did not, they did not actually eat out of the market share of web payments they expanded the market share of web payments and the only way mm-hmm. that we can know this is that they built something if they didn't build it everybody just be looking like nobody would know that that opportunity existed right and when they you know yeah. of, of course yeah. when they launched and they saw some success you started to see many um many similar type of products you know in that space and many people even now build on top of what they have built to solve some of the problems you know, yeah. that they saw in that So I would say that time and luck are two super super important things. And you never actually know when is the right time except you like, you know, you launch or build build products.
0: I think I, I also like something that Stephanie said, like she said, first movers the fact that you're first mover does not mean you will take over the market. And I think it's pretty interesting because I personally believe that first movers educate 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 people about the fact that there is a problem that exists. And then second movers, capitalize
2: on that um, education that has been done. What do you think about this Yes, this, this, this happens a lot. So if you look at the first our first two um, our first two examples, right YouTube and PayStack, YouTube was in the first video platform. There was there were so many videos, I do not remember all of them now. There was real video from Real network. I remember that one. There were a bunch of video platforms and so they kind of had educate those people had educated the market before youtube and even in the pay thing we had InterSwitch um web payments i think it's called it's called the quick teller web payments and they have done all the work getting developers to use this platform getting banks to integrate with them you know they had done a bunch of education and even like marketing spend in just trying yeah. to get people to integrate and just understand like cards can work what is an OTP? So I would mm-hmm. say that yes, sometimes you see that, but what is, sometimes it, oh, there's also a situation where if the first, if the first mover fails, um everybody else who's like the consumer or stakeholder in that like mini ecosystem just becomes very weary of trusting new products. So there's also mm-hmm. that. Yeah, it's like if the first savings and investments app in Nigeria did not do well. Oh, it's like a it's like a red flag for all the other savings and investment apps. Ah, if people could not I get back, right? I, <laughs> don't, I don't has anything to say.
1: No, I agree with you, Binjo. I agree with you, right? Uh, I, I think for I, we call them pioneer um, companies, right? Companies that champion a certain innovation or venture into blue ocean markets. They really set the pace for a lot of others, right? Mm. And, yeah. and that's why we have to be intentional. And, and in the space that we're in, particularly the accelerator uh, incubation stage, we're very, very particular about these type of companies. So we know now, okay, that there's, there's there's the fintech the, the fintech space has, has grown to an extent, it has matured, but there are other spaces that we're looking at and we're looking and we're currently working with some companies that are going to be pioneer companies in these sectors, right? We're laying those pipes and laying the foundations to make sure that even if they don't get this supposed first mover advantage, their story will be a pointer to the potential of companies coming after them. And and, and that's what we always tell founders, right, Uh, particularly uh, those people who are in this pioneer um, sector, uh, who are pioneer startups in these sectors, so we tell them, you're not building for yourself alone. You're not building for today. You're building for an industry. You're pretty much laying the pipes of this industry. And you have to understand that. So, yes, Binjo, I agree with you. Time, lock, And of course, um, pioneer uh, startups also set the pace for startups coming after them
0: all right now let's talk about scaling um you know yeah let's say they're they are startup a startup b The one thing we normally see is that you know a startup just you know blows out of the water just like out amongst all of them do you understand? and then you say markets and one just takes over the market here so is there something that they are doing that others are not doing
1: Okay, so again, again, it boils down to for me the USP, even though we have a lot of startups or we have competing startups in various industries, I always ask this question, right? What is your USP? What is your unique selling proposition? At the end of the day, I'm sorry to say this, we see quite a lot of startups who are just. uh, you know I, I, we're doing the same thing over and over again it's like so you have things like it's like uber but for mosquito repellent or something like that to use that as an <laughs> example and and i yeah. keep asking myself i keep asking myself what makes you different right i think most of the startups that actually blow out of the water as you have said most of the startups that actually lead in these markets have a unique selling proposition. They are, they are distinct. So if you compare all of them, put them on a table and you know list the factors that differentiate these startups, you will see that they are clearly distinct from each other. And that's what the market chooses, right? The market rewards uniqueness because it's a competition. Yes, we're in the same industry. Yes, we're, we're solving the same problem. But how I solve it uniquely is how the market is going to reward me. Right? Yeah. So if I have, if I have five startups doing the same thing, and one day someone all of a sudden identifies his unique selling proposition and amplifies it, he's gonna leave the rest behind. So for me, I always say your USP when all is said and done it's what stands you out it's what keeps you in the game it's what keeps you ahead some people is straight secrets. so for example uh, if you are in in like the delivery or FMCG space or people who deal with a lot of uh, supplies and and, 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 uh, a lot of things where you buy from one person and deliver to another person how you are able to first of all maintain competitive prices it's it, it's it's some people trade secrets right where you buy from is what determines how you're going to maintain competitive prices and then you realize that each time you go to shop right, something is always cheaper irrespective of anything even if you go everywhere else if you get to shop right, it's probably going to be cheaper why the USP is probably where they buy from and how they source they've understood it and they're and they've laid into it, and they've built on it, so I think the USP is what separates any startup that will lead the market from all the others that will just be at the same level.
0: Right. Finjo,
2: what do you have to say about that? So, am I might have a different um, opinion from Stephanie here. So. While I agree that there's this, there's the need to have USP, One of the things I'm really seeing that sets many like early-stage companies apart from like their peers, especially when there are many products in in similar spaces, is that they actually just do the work. Like they're very focused on getting the customers, testing the products in the hands of the customers, getting feedback refining that feedback and um, using that feedback to refine the product. And they are doing that over and over and over again as they scale. Um, you know, one of, one of the things I see happening is people very, people get quickly carried away with, like, you know, the product is launched or they get carried away with, like, the press and the buzz that comes with um, the attention when you announce a product or when you announce, like, a speed round or a series a or whatever it might be. Um, and they quickly lose that, you know, that product focused, And so the best teams end up being the teams that know that okay we're trying to get 100,000 customers in Lagos right and they're heavily focused on getting 100,000 customers they're heavily focused on improving that um product experience whatever the product experience might be and that then becomes like the USP right so the USP now feeds into that oh I have this product that maybe like at preceding it was terrible right but I took it to my 10 customers my 10 customers used it And I was able to refine over and over again, um, build what is now this great tool that I can now expand, you know, to, to, I can now build, um, I can now keep building and expand and, you know, conquer the market or acquire as many customers as possible. Um, I think that is a little bit inevitable, um, just because of the kind of markets that we're in, it's inevitable that somebody comes and builds, you know, your similar product, if you're a founder, for example, or like a product manager, there's probably somebody who's going to build the exact same thing, right? So the difference is now like, oh, is the user experience better or are you getting to customers before they do, right? If you're getting to customers, if you are two customers and person, you know, person it gets to those two customers before even you that maybe you even have like the best user experience, people already tend to lock in. Um, And so for many types of products, it becomes a little bit difficult for them to switch. So I would say just like, from my own perspective and my own experience, it's people just really just doing the work um, and being deeply focused on uh, what they need to do to grow from like zero to one.
0: So you've worked in a lot of like growth teams on the continent. Um, In in your experience, is scaling a function of just your marketing budget?
2: So yes, it can be, but also no, no because scaling is often a function. Scaling is often a function of your of the market size, right? So it's like, oh, we have this product and we think there's x hundred thousand or x million people who are going to use this product, and now we need to get to their hands. And so the marketing budget now comes as a function of that size, which is what does it cost us to reach these people, right? What would it cost? Which is why, like, when people come to raise money and we see their deck, there's often a pie chart that says how much they intend to spend on marketing and an estimation of what they think their marketing is going to cost, right? So it's like, oh, I think there's this many people in the market. Now I need some money to go reach them. But there's also a situation where, and what i really do when i like advice at early stage is how can we turn this product into something that like talks for itself right where people can use this product with their friends or they can share with their friends more easily so we can then like obviously drop that whatever we estimated the marketing cost to be we can drop it drastically or how can we um, have this balance between paid and organic marketing so we're doing a bunch of very interesting organic stuff, whether it's events, whether it's um, content, whether it's memes, whether it's animation, whatever, whatever format it comes in and we're using that to balance out, you know, our paid marketing. Uh, so, you know, both, both things are intertwined.
0: Right. I think it's pretty interesting that you mentioned um, the market size, because I think that's one thing that often overlooked. you know, we can have like a bunch of market and um, you can have uh, like a lot of money marketing projects but like if the market size does not match it then you know once the point do you guess and as it's, actually now because like there's a lot of um conversation going on about how people are building up for only Lagos people what is, what's your thoughts on that
2: me or Stephanie me yeah you I I, I think I <clears throat> maybe I hope this is not your take but like i think it's fine to build something for lagos people if there are enough people in lagos to keep the business sustained over a period of time there's like what 20 something million people in lagos so if it's a service that appeals to a large enough section of people in lagos and you know the company can keep layering more features and more services on top of their core products or their core feature and they can keep expanding to eat that market whatever they think the market size is um and the reason is because not everybody's going to build um some product that is going to get into the hands of one million people it could be like ten thousand people right and uh, are companies who do like b2b enterprise software and they have like 100 customers but the 100 customers are so large that the only customers are responsible for billions of dollars of revenue uh annually so it's really it's very nuanced right um there's people who the by design or by the problem they are solving the products the products tend to be more mass markets um than most uh, other products and other products tend to be less mass markets than others mm-hmm. it really depends on what the size is um, to give an example here if you're building something for people who work remote that's people in who, who live in nigeria or live in africa today but um they work for organizations outside of africa right or even maybe just around africa but you don't know in their, their primary country of residence that number is very small if we're being honest but it's sizable in enough that the problem needs to be the problem needs to be stopped people need to be able to accept money they need to be able to get their health insurance because if they often work remote they don't have health insurance right they need to be able to get other benefits and things so solving for that problem although it's small is sizable enough to keep the startup afloat and then another thing i think people miss forget is, is that as a person is building a product and interacting with customers they start to learn other problems that their customer has right so if we look at this remote example maybe people need help even just i don't know maybe they don't have good internet. maybe they need help with office equipment or something that can that can enable more transactions on that product right yeah. so many times you find that a startup comes and announces that, oh, we're solving for X today. And by the time they keep talking to customers, it turns out that they're solving for like Y in two years' time. And that mm-hmm. is, is is normal. Like, it's a normal progression for anyone who's building software and, you know, trying to solve problems with software. Right. Stephanie,
0: do you have any, like, opinions, contrary or in line with what he said?
1: Okay, so... I know you said that there are people building stuff for only Lagos people. I, I think everybody has their market, right? And every successful business needs to zero in on its market. First of all, you need to first understand who are, who you're building for, right? And once you understand that, you then figure out the best way to acquire those customers, right? Right? that's 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 my take on on the on the issue of oh okay some people are building some products that we think may not be be uh universal or may not fit some um, various demographies i think if you know your market i know there's a chart that i used to see online where i think it was this lady that shared this where you want to make a billion dollars you you kill an elephant right so this is like have like one customer that gives you all the money or you you kill a mice a a mouse rather i beg your pardon kill a mouse these are and, and then so you need to understand your your customer the ideal customer zero in on that and then figure out how much you want to spend to acquire these customers so that that's my take don't never lose focus on the so every other thing in the market is actually for me I always say it's actually secondary hmm. if you it's take correct. data from people who are not your primary primary customers or your primary constituents or primary uh your your primary uh audience it will help you to an extent but it, it, it would it will not give you so much value so first If you you are taking data from the right people, then you can branch into, then you can really understand the other needs they have that you may have not solved, right? But you need to be focused on the right people first. So that's the thing. It's an exchange between the right people and your business. That's how you, you get to learn from the market. And that's where we always bring up the concept of product market fit. It needs to fit. You cannot scale something that is not working. Put a million dollars in marketing to the wrong audience. It's like I'm speaking Yoruba and my audience is speaking Mandarin, right? We're not communicating. There's no exchange of value. There's no message coming from me to you. You can't, at best we'll struggle, right? So product market fit for me, once you can zero in on that, you understand people you are building for, you build for them, take all the data that you want, you prune, prune, you keep building. Even when you achieve that, the product begins to drive itself. You may now realize that you don't even need to spend so much money, right, to actually um, acquire more customers.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That, 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 that's what I think.
0: Right. And um, before I go any further... I just want to say that um, if you have any questions in the audience and you want to ask, you can feel free to request and I will um, allow you to. Um, I know somebody requested the other time, but uh, I think I missed it. So please, if you want to request, feel free and um, I will simply allow you to. Alright, so my next question will be on regulation and (laughs) let's talk about regulation. Is it a necessary evil? And also, um, startups that have missed regulation or that have, um, you know, that are building in a space where there is no clear regulatory or you know, no clear regulation and are trying to like move around it. What are your, what's your take on that? Um, let me hear from Danger.
2: Okay, so the first thing is regulation is not evil regulation exists regulation exists because if you don't have rules and you don't have laws businesses tend to take laws into their own hands and regulation exists to prevent the public from chronic capitalism which is yes i'm trying to make money but in reality i'm making some money or i'm doing too much i'm squeezing the customers of too much cash or my services are not just good enough right so regulation exists to protect the public, you have to realize that many people are engaging with hundreds or if not thousands of businesses um, every day or every month, and they often don't have the knowledge requirements to protect themselves. That's why governments have regulatory frameworks, right? So it's like, oh, you want to move money from person A to person B. These are the guidelines of how to move money. So that person A's money doesn't get lost and person B receives their money on time, you know what I'm saying? You want to give credit to SMEs, these are the guidelines to give credit to SMEs so that you don't squeeze them from with so much uh, what's it called, interest that their business dies and they can't fit for their family, right? So, um, it's similar, same thing you have in healthcare, whether you're producing drugs or you have a hospital, like the guidelines are there to protect you know the public from chronic capitalism. So, I would say it's a necessary evil. Um, that's to answer the first question. To answer the second question, now keeping in mind that these rules exist to protect, you know, the public, the question will now be if I cannot afford, you know, to have a direct relationship or maybe an even indirect relationship with um, the regulator in my space. So maybe I'm in healthcare and I don't have, I don't have a license that allows me to do something from NAPDAC, right? Who can I partner with, yeah. right? That has that NAVDAC license or regulatory approval that can then vet, can serve as a vet, as a vetting entity for my own services, right? And we see this happen all the time. We see, um, we see a bunch of organisations, especially in the healthcare space, partner with like the WHO, for example, because they know that oh, if they partner with WHO, there's you know someone from government going to come and just say say anything anyhow because that serves like as a betting entity right um Mm. and that's one way to approach it right the second way to approach it is okay i'm not ready to serve this like the government's rules say xyz i don't have xyz that means i'm actually not ready to serve this um that i think exists right so what other way or what type of product can i build to protect myself from, clearly from, you know, government regulation, where I don't need government regulation, or whatever else can I build that ensures that my risk to the public is minimal. So maybe instead of doing something that's today, something today that impacts maybe one million people, maybe I want to run something that impacts 100 people. So the risks are much less, right? Um, I think that's a better way to think about it. I think that many people think about it as. And us versus them, which is business versus the regulator, or tech versus the regulator. And um, every regulator is trying to protect, you know, different stakeholders. The CBN, for example, is trying to protect the naira. The SEC is trying to protect individual, everyday investors, right, from losing their cash. Um, Some other health organization, the NCC, for example, is protecting the what's happening in the communication space so every every regulator has their job and they have like their own stakeholders um so it must be approached of a sense of oh yes this is a business and we're trying to make money or provide a service but we also run the risk of actually causing harm right like business i feel like this cannot actually cause harm regardless of whatever the mission and the vision is um and so that's a better way to i think founders can approach this um and hopefully not run into any regulatory problems.
1: Right. Stephanie, what are your thoughts? Okay, uh Bingo, I agree with you. You've actually said it all. Um, just to reecho echo some 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 of the things you said, regulation is necessary where there is no law, there is no crime, right? Uh, the regulators we know sometimes, particularly in the in the african african climate we know sometimes they could really calm down very hard and all of that because they are trying to discharge their duties and i think if we put it in this in this light right you're building a startup in a way you are kind of experimenting right for you so for example as a founder if your startup fails you learn from it you move on but the thing is you had Actual customers. You had real people who really, really attached value to the thing that you were building, even though it was an experiment to in, in some type of way. So the regulator exists to protect those people, to protect the economy as a whole. Right. And for startups that are that are that are building or for founders who are building in areas that I call regulatory gray areas, please and please, I always emphasize this, speak to a lawyer 10 times out of 10 times. The first question you need to ask, am I violating any rules by doing this and this? Okay, I have this great idea. You have spoken to somebody who's, okay, maybe a business mentor or something, You've watched a few videos or you've done your own research the next person you need to talk to is a lawyer who is grounded in that space you see go on linkedin there are a lot of people who would exchange the knowledge that they have with you for free right ask these questions what i want to do first question is it legal can i do it in this jurisdiction Number one, second question. Okay, is there any regulation or set of laws that will be guiding my activity? Then the person who's the expert will come back to you and say, although um, there's not a particular one, but a few other guidelines on on industries or sectors closely related to where you're playing have said this. These are the closest things to the regulations that guide you. At the end of the day, if there are gonna be regulations created for the industry or, or, or the space that you're playing in, it will be built on these ones that have existed before. So for me, in order to avoid all, this, all these things, I always say, speak to your lawyer, have a, have a conversation with your regulator. I've actually, okay, yes, we need to build. I know innovation precedes uh, regulation. There's all of that. But you can be building and at the same time engaging your regulator. What would happen if you actually sat down with your regulators and said, and said, see, you know what? This is what I'm building. This is what we're trying to solve for. There's no clear-cut um, um, regulation on this thing. Can you use us as a pilot? And this will help people in our sector or people that will come. We need to take that approach. We don't need to say, oh, the regulators are the bad guys. We'll wait for them to catch up with us. It actually saves you the heartache if we try as much as possible to engage them. I know it may seem a bit uh what Stephanie is saying, but the thing is a simple email, a simple letter, there are departments that in 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 you know in regulatory agencies that actually see to these things a simple letter delivered to to that particular department can open a whole new conversation on the area that you're building you're building with your regulator at uh, you know hand in hand with you i don't think there's going to be a problem so i think we need to be more creative and more um collaborative when it comes to these areas. Regulators are not bad. They are there to protect the sanity and the sanctity of the corporate space. And we need to give them the 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 recognition that they deserve. Because you might in might sleep today, your business is legal, tomorrow you're a criminal and there's nothing yeah, you can do it. about it. Yeah, I like what you
0: said about taking it to active, um Measure instead of a reactive one, and I think that that's something that even in Africa we don't pretend not to do. And um, I think it's just a way to, um, like, as builders or people building for the future, it's um, important that we are one step ahead or at, at, this, at every point in trying to do this. And I think, um, so yeah, my next question um, basically how important is company culture in shaping public perception? And I'm, when I'm talking about perception, I'm talking of users and you know um, downloads of your app, users of your product. You know does company culture steal into that area? Because I know that um, a couple of times on Twitter we have seen a case where somebody thinks, oh, people who leave this company, they um, they are always really happy. That means that the company has a good work culture. A good company culture, and I think a good product. I think, I mean, it means that they are doing well. I would like to use their product, What's your take on that,
1: um, setting? Okay, so again, I would say that um, your biggest, your biggest testimonials as a business is in the lives that you are able to affect, either by the problems that you're solving for your users or by the people who actually work with you. We need to understand that employees are actually the first customers, even though they may not be paying. They are one of our major stakeholders in the business space, because it takes an employee to actually buy into the vision of what you're trying to do to come into a company and, you know, work with other individuals to achieve the corporate objective that you guys have set out to achieve. That said, right, Any organization that does not pay attention to promoting a friendly, a a positive, and a, what I call, for want of a better word now, a growth-friendly corporate structure or culture is an organization that does not want to outlive a certain number of years. Here's what I mean. IBM, big, big companies that we, we make reference to today were started by a team of people and have been continued by thousands of people after the original founding team. What has brought them this far is the culture that they have been able to promote. Right? So, yeah. our founders in this, um, in Africa particularly, we need to begin to think beyond the first five, ten years we need to be able to say you know what, I'm building for the next twenty years if you build with that in mind, it tells a story in the hearts of people and if people look around and see that these guys have been around for five years, ten years, the guys that actually work here actually have a lot of positive things to say I think the brand that I can trust. I'm going to stick with them. Let me give an example. Everybody likes Chevron from the outside. Maybe when you get close to them or you do stuff with them, but in Nigeria, I'm not sure Chevron has an um, anybody that will say bad things about the company. And you know why? Because people know that when you start working in Chevron, you are part of the big boys. They actually pay attention to the welfare of their staff, right? Everybody likes likes organizations that treat their staff well because they are apart from the product that you are really putting out there. They are your other products, right? Everybody is gonna accept an organization that pays attention to its people. So we need to begin to say, I'm building for the next twenty years. I'm going to need people to actually build this with me we've heard of founders who who do who start who start something and then move on to another one and the other one is still existing they've exited they've build something else so again brands that outlive a founder brands that continue despite different changes become brands that are cemented in the minds of people become trusted brands become the gold standard for related brands
0: Bingo, do you have anything to add or take
2: away from that? No, I don't have can you hear me? Can you hear me?
0: Um, Yes, can you? Okay,
2: no, I don't have anything to add so you can go ahead
0: okay um we have somebody who wants to ask a question um big sorry hold on uh big chief alexander Ruyi, yeah um you have a question hi um thank you guys first of all for um organizing this
2: space um just yeah
0: one, one, one. Alex, can you speak up a bit
2: um sorry can I, can, I, can everybody hear me now
0: yes
2: okay um so thanks for organizing this space um um i like the interaction that's been going on so far it has been helpful um just one quick question though um what do you guys think about um government participation in startups like in the sense that is it necessary to maybe like have someone in government on your board um Carrying them along, I mean, in the big picture, I'm thinking in terms of policy creation, basically, especially in spaces where there are no, there's not really any framework or like that, and you're like the sort of like pioneer, first out of the gate. Um, yeah.
0: All right, thank you, Alex. Um, Binjo, would you like to answer that for us?
2: um so i don't know if you missed where we talked about regulation so i think we already covered that and said it's it's so important to um you know carry government along whichever way you decide to approach it could be different but we did we did say that yes that's super super important especially if you're working in a space where um the regulation is not clear or hasn't yet been set because like you're a pioneer in the space or you're borrowing some concepts from another country and those concepts don't exist Um, In your country, legally.
0: Well, I think I think one one uh, what he's trying to ask is, you know, a lot of people always say get somebody in government on your board. So is that necessary? That whole thing of trying to get somebody from government on your board is important? So when you mean
2: get somebody in government, government, government. do you mean somebody who's like holding an active political or or government agency office? Because then they can't be on your board. It's probably somebody who's used to working in governments. Um, yeah, because they can't be on your board while they're holding that position because there's like an obvious conflict of interest, right? So they probably will not even agree. Um, but yes, those types of people, people who you think have government experience, who you think have a very strong network with governments, who can speak to uh, whether it's permanent secretaries or ministers or commissioners on your behalf and can help you liaise, They're super, super, super uh important. Yes.
0: Right. Um, But just make sure that
2: it's the right, make sure it's the right person with the right connections. So it shouldn't be the wrong, it shouldn't be the wrong person that doesn't have any like um what's it called? Any that doesn't have any uh what's the word we like to use now? The the slang we use that doesn't have mouth in that agency. Nobody (laughs) So there's someone that has mouth that can vouch for you. Yeah. All
0: right. Um, Alexander, does that answer your question?
1: I I wanted to add something though. Can you hear me? I can hear
0: you.
1: Okay, so in as much as yes, there's we always make a case to actually have heavy lifters on your board, people that have mouth, like Bingo has said. I think a lot more attention should actually go towards um creating an avenue for these regular handshakes between the startup community and the policymakers. i wonder what we're going to call it but there needs to be a structured approach to these things the reason why we still have these gaps is because every man is you know putting people with mouth on his board and so a, lo- a lot of people, okay, some people get away, some people don't. At the end of the day, the effect is still on everybody. So, whilst we're getting the big names and the big guns, we should also pay attention, all right, to designing a framework for these regular exchanges. There, there should be something. And, 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 I, and I know that the startup bill is is in the works I know that, but what's more important, it could be it could be like an association. I still don't see a very large umbrella for our ecosystem. I still don't see it, right? I think a step in the right direction would be maybe set up whatever we want to call it, right? We can call it that. But it will be an avenue to drive conversations between the policy makers and the ecosystem. Mm. I think we need to have that. Maybe there's one, if there's one, then there, there needs to be more awareness about what they do and how they are helping you know, startups in the ecosystem navigate this thing. So for example, maybe you have an umbrella body and then the ex goes, uh, or, or people who make decisions there are, are, are people caught across different sectors and people in the polity themselves it's one way okay so there's there's a regulation that is about to, to 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 be to be made the first place it's talked about is in that association there is a direct communication line to say the government is about to do this let's speak to these guys using this medium this the, the body then talks to its members to say members what do you think this is what the government wants to do then someone says this is how it's going to affect me this is how it's going to affect me this is how it's going to affect me then we will all come together go back to the drawing board and give our input on how that regulation should be designed so i think yes there's a case for that get the big guys on your board and all of that but there needs to be a corporate approach, a structured approach to solving this problem.
0: And I want to ask um Stephanie, I'm happy that you mentioned this structured approach. Do you mean as a company, the company has to form a structured approach, or do you mean as an industry? So like for instance, um FinTech for instance in a particular country, you need to form, you know, a a structured approach to you know, um, communicating with regulators or
1: do, do you have find to say so what are you yes. Yeah, yes, so I mean as an industry, as a cluster now, as a cluster, we need to set up, we need to, we need to explore a structure that so it could be health tech, health tech uh, startups and health tech regulators and NAVDAC, right, have, they come up so it doesn't even have to be an association. It could be a, a, two times a year annual gathering and these people actually talk about serious issues and then execute and then there's always okay interactions monthly from a secretariat maybe a five-man office but their job is just to always facilitate com- conversations between the ecosystem the cluster of related companies and the regulators so that that's yeah, what I yeah. meant
0: okay okay um, does anybody else have any questions we're coming to the end of this conversation already and um, I would like to wrap up but before we round off um, if you have any questions you can just uh, signify request, and I would allow you to speak uh, I'll just wait a I wait about 30 seconds and if there are no questions we will uh, round off just so we can respect the the speaker, this time of the speakers we have really given our time to speak to us today and if you're just joining us the conversation is basically around simple products that became big companies in Africa what made them different um, the companies that have killed so far From what we've seen in the past What are the things that have made them different What may have made them stand out How do you as a startup founder Approach regulation ETC? And if you're just joining us The recording is always This space is recorded So the recording is available for you to Listen to at the end of the conversation And uh, yeah Alright uh, Okay I think I think, yeah, no questions for now. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining in. And it was really great speaking to you, um, Stephanie and Binger. Thank you so much for coming on. You have this conversation with us. Um, Yeah. Any last words, Stephanie, (laughs) Binger?
1: Thank you, Blessing. It's always a pleasure. I'm so glad that I could make it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Binger, as always spot on and always lively <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> thank you so much blessing for inviting me and thanks to stephanie as well i think stephanie really shared a lot that i have learned from uh, learned from personally so thank yeah. you so much for uh, this conversation
0: oh and before we go let me plug your book um bing joe just released the growth handbook bing do, do you want to tell us about it what, um, in like 30 seconds before we close
2: sure so let me just i'm coming let me just open it on my screen so i can just read from the page <laughs> so the growth handbook for uh scaling fintech in nigeria is the first edition of the growth handbook and what we're basically doing or what i have done with this book is speaking to operators who have led different sides of um a f- financial, f- financial technology startups different fintech startups so there's folks who have done like digital banking like coda and carbon folks who have worked at companies like paystack um companies like e-settlements um team apps money points and number and um which am I, missing? I mentioned e earlier so it's just talking to all these professionals about different things they have done in w- where they work and what they have learned and bringing uh, these lessons together so you can find the book if you visit my profile my profile is Binge, I don't know. i'm taking a break from twitter so this is not my actual profile uh but if you check you see a link there um if you check this profile you see a link there so you can please check it out and you can pre-order the book is out next week monday yes yeah, so it's out in five days next week monday thank you so much
0: all right thank you so much um yeah so have we've come to the end of this conversation have a great evening and have a lovely week everybody bye thank bye. you bye. bye bye-bye bye-bye, bye-bye. bye-bye.